Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of No Such Thing as a Fish. Now, before I remind you about our tour, which is about to begin in places such as Tunbridge Wells, Nottingham, Richmond, Reading, Peterborough, and a whole load of other places, I want to tell you about the very, very, very special guest that we have on today's show. Uh, Anna is away at the moment. She's on holiday. I'm not sure exactly where she's gone, probably somewhere very sunny. Um, last I saw, she was removing lots of the holiday clothes from her bag and replacing them with 19th century literature. So I'm sure she's having a great time. But in her place, we have the incredible journalist and author, Mary Roach. Now, I don't know if you'll know about Mary. You really should if you don't. Um, she is, well, what I would say is if you were to take QI the TV show and No Such Thing as a Fish and squish it all together in a tiny little ball, send it over to America and then reconstitute it as a single human, then pretty much you're going to end up with Mary Roach. She has written some of the greatest popular science books in history. Books such as Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers, uh, Bonk, The Curious Coupling of Science and Sex, I think you can see probably why we get on very well with Mary. Um, Packing for Mars, The Curious Science of Life in the Void, Gulp, Adventures on the Elementary Canal. Uh, and her latest book is, in America, it's called Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. And in the UK, it is known as Animal, Vegetable, Criminal. And it is a book all about times when the natural world came up against the legal world. Uh, I haven't read it yet. Dan has read it, and he assures me it's absolutely brilliant. And I can definitely believe that because I've read all of Mary's other books. And to a tome, they are incredible. So, really do enjoy the show. I'm sure you will. Uh, buy Mary's new book and pretty much all of her old books if you're interested in stuff. Uh, and do come to our live shows. If you live in any of the aforementioned places that I mentioned earlier on, uh, then come along in the next couple of weeks. Or if you live anywhere in the UK and Ireland, then go to qi.com slash fish events and you can see where we'll be playing near you. Okay, on with the podcast. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from four undisclosed locations globally. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with Andrew Hunter-Murray, James Harkin, and our very special guest. It is Mary Roach. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is Mary. When feeling threatened, gulls practice a maneuver called defensive vomiting. The point of which, experts say, is not to disgust and repel the predator, but to offer it an alternative meal. Wow. <laughs> what possibly could they offer that is better than what the animal was coming for in the first place? Is it vomit? Is it actual vomit? It is. It's vomit. And I think that is a service because it's partially digested. Oh, yeah. It saves effort. So um, when I first heard about defensive vomiting, I actually heard about it in a, in a vulture because vultures do this too. And I thought, oh, they do this to be lighter so when they flee when they fly away they'll have less weight and then the guy said no no that's not why they do it the other thing i thought would be to disgust them mm. because you hear about women feeling threatened and, and like uh, vomiting to disgust their attacker so i thought it was that in fact no 
it's just to offer them something more appealing to eat. I was reading in your book that you were talking to an expert and specifically the items that she has seen been vomited up before her include ants, (laughs) strawberry shortcake, a large (laughs) mackerel. Yeah, but Dan, think about it. That does make sense, right? If you're coming over to eat a gull, but you get some strawberry shortcake instead, then that's obviously way tastier, though. That's a big win. Well, you get. it looks like from the list that sometimes it's very awesome cuisine, like spaghetti marinara with mussels, and the other times it's a loaded diaper. So it's, you know. (laughs) Wow. I wonder if the predator ever waits, you know, it's it's sitting there in front of a diaper that's just been vomited up in front of it, and it's saying, no, I'm I'm still going to eat you unless you can come up with something a little bit better. (laughs) I was saying, hang on, hang on, I've got, I've got some shortcake. I'm sure I had some shortcake earlier. I read of one bird, the fulmar. Do you know this one? It's very oily, the yeah. fulmar. And in the olden days, they used to kind of use them as torches. They would set them on fire because they were so oily. Whoa. But I read that they um, sometimes vomit very, very oily sick onto another animal, and it might stop their feathers from working and stop them from being able to fly and, and swim and stuff like that. Right. Uh, huh. Yeah, that's a very cool There's so many things you can do with vomit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think we underutilize our own vomit. Yeah, are there powers? Do we have extra powers to our vomit that we're not utilising? I don't know if we do. Maybe so. Dan, you're really interested in that, aren't you? Because just this morning you messaged us saying that you'd just been vomited on. <laughs> yes, I like. <laughs> this wasn't me doing research for the show. My son vomited on me this morning uh, in in pure coincidence. He's a bit ill, but um, yeah, it is. I couldn't fly afterwards. I was very sick. <laughs> I really like it. It's not bird related, but it's it's a Nigerian bit of folklore that there are snakes which will vomit up a diamond. Okay, if they're hunting at night, they need a bit of light, and so they throw up a diamond, and the light will kind of refract around inside it and light up the local area. That's really interesting yeah. because, like, do you know those little bits of glass in roads, cat size? Yeah. Mm. Well, they were supposed to have been invented in like the twentieth century, right? But it seems like maybe snakes invented them way before well yes the snakes don't do this unfortunately it's um it would be it would be amazing if they did the reason the myth came about is they've got these little mineral deposits i think they're called calculi or calculi i don't know how you pronounce it Uh, they're like kidney stones basically in their bodies and so they are there but they're not diamonds and the snakes don't throw them up but i guess people have cut open the snakes and said ah look here's the magical diamond it uses as a torch but don't you need a you need a light source do they also throw up a flashlight? I mean, where, <laughs> where are they? It's like the diamond is no good if you don't have yeah, it's true. the right yeah. kind of light. So true. Wow. And so vultures do it as well. Any other birds, any other animals do this? I've only heard of uh, vultures and gulls. Vultures are problematic because they like to roost on, you know, those giant communications towers. They have a lot of places for vultures to just sit there and hang out, which they like to do. And so it makes it really, if you're someone whose job is to climb the communications tower and do work, you, first of all, are stepping a lot of vulture shit all over the struts of the communications tower. But also you have like 50 vultures vomiting <laughs> down on you, this rain of vomit. Oh my goodness. So, yeah, I heard that um, when I first read about gulls spewing out, um, I thought it was a thing about, you know, just getting weight off so that they could fly away faster. And that's that turns out to be a myth. But apparently it's not a myth within Komodo dragons. They can't fly. That's a different <laughs> dragon you're thinking of, Dan. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No, no. If they need to make a speedy getaway, they will just quickly have a vomit and it will lighten their load a bit, really? just allowing them that extra bit yeah, of speed. Yeah. And also... 
I'm sorry, how do we really know what the answer is? Nobody's asked the gulls. <laughs> yes. We've got different theories, and I, I, I kind of like the, you know, speedy getaway. Let me lighten the load. Have we even tested that as a theory? Like, surely Usain Bolt should have had a quick vomit before he ran some of those 100 metres to really <laughs> smash the record. You do get that. Sports people sometimes do vomit before the sporting events. I've heard of a few soccer players doing it, but usually I think it's like nerves mm. and stuff like that, right? Adrenaline and stuff. And of course, there was the marathon runner, what she called? Paula Radcliffe. Paula Radcliffe. She had a poo halfway through, which might have lightened her oh, yeah. load. And Did she win? Yeah, she did. Okay. She see, did. See, it works. I think, though, in the long run, she probably would think, maybe I wouldn't take that poo. Maybe it wasn't worth the win because it's all anyone talks about. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest female marathon runner of all time, and that's all we ever talk about anyway. Exactly. Like, three of us knew that she definitely had a poo, but I did not know if she won that race. So. <laughs> This example of the gull vomiting, which is in your book, which I was reading about, um, it kind of was leading into this story about how there was huge problems at the Vatican when the Pope was going to have a big uh, celebration and they had all these daffodils there and all the gulls were coming in and they don't eat flowers, but they were pissed off and seemed to be knocking them over. And they thought maybe they were going in to pick the worms, but there was no obvious sign that that was happening. And you sort of were questioning whether or not this is just a dickhead species of yeah. gull, maybe. Um, <laughs> exactly. Uh, as we learned, gulls will eat just about anything, but they don't eat flowers and daffodils. I read somewhere are poisonous. So, and they didn't eat, they weren't eating them. They were just sort of pulling them up and like throwing them around. And the people <laughs> who set this floral display up, they come down from the Netherlands and they spend like the entire day before setting it up. So they were pretty pissed at the gulls. Um, but it, there wasn't any obvious reason gulls do a defensive thing where they pull up grass to just be macho and say this is my territory <laughs> but that's why i just sort of thought well uh, it, is it just that they're dicks <laughs> i don't know mary i was reading about the training that you did because i know the book is all about wildlife and humans and the sort of vexed legal areas between them and you did this uh, is it wart yes wildlife human attack response training yeah it's kind of a I don't know if you guys have forensics shows, like people go onto the crime scene and collect evidence. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. kind of that, but when uh, wild animals killed someone. So they still have the yellow tape, you know, and if people come in with their their evidence bags, the little evidence flags, and they're looking for blood spatter patterns and all that stuff. Wow. I love it, though, because the thing you wrote about is we do think, okay, so they're coming in and they're looking at, say, like a cougar that's killed a young man, but then it turns out that's all a setup. The cougar's been framed, and actually, it was a human killer that they didn't identify at the time, only years later, because they see puncture marks, but those have been framed. And I I just love the idea that they're there to sort of suss out, okay, it looks like they were mauled by a cougar, but were they really? Oh. Yeah, exactly. It was, a, it was a dude with an ice pick <sighs> who stabbed somebody in the neck and some doofus wildlife person who didn't take wart training. <laughs> um, he's like, yeah, that looks like a cougar because they go right for the neck. Yeah, they do go for the neck, but they have an upper jaw and a lower jaw and the teeth marks are, look a certain way. They don't look like an ice pick. Anyway, so uh, that guy finally did uh, get busted like 10 years later. He was bragging about the crime oh. in prison oh, for something in prison. else. Oh, there done. we go. They gave you advice, I read, about what to do if you have to shoot a bear because it's attacking someone. And it said, I can't believe this, but I wanted to check it with you. You're, you're advised to run up to the bear, plant the barrel on it, and then shoot upwards. And it's because you can't aim under those circumstances because it's so stressful. Yeah, exactly. And also, uh, there's a whole thing about if a bear is attacking somebody and they're going at it, and you're trying to shoot the bear, 
how do you make sure you don't shoot the guy? Mm. So there was this story of this, I forget the guy's name, Worf or something or Wolf. I don't know. Uh, uh, anyway, she <laughs> killed the bear, but he also shot the guy in the leg. Yeah. But, you know, a small price to pay, I suppose. Yeah. I suppose you can't really outrun a bear if it's going to come after you, right? So you might as well go towards it. But if it's busy attacking your friend, you've got a chance. <laughs> yes, you do. Yeah. <laughs> Always be the second slowest person. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, you could try the vomit. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> yeah. well, busy. Your friend's being mauled by the bear. You just throw it throwing up in the background. <laughs> Mary, did you do any um, arson stuff or arson dog stuff in the course of the book? Any arson? Sorry, I was reading about the arson dogs that they have in America. Have you heard of these? It's oh. insane. There's a place in Connecticut called the Accelerant Detection Canine School. Wow. Oh, the Accelerant. Yeah, exactly. Oh. All the Anything used to get a fire going. They can identify 17 different types of accelerant. Wow. And this is the amazing thing. Sometimes they will bring the dogs to the fire while it's still burning because often when there's a fire there's a crowd of onlookers right but sometimes the people who set the fire are in the crowd watching it and they will turn up and the dog will sniff a few drops of petrol or whatever they used on them and then they get busted wow that's incredible um we should probably move on in a sec to our next fact does anyone else want to add anything before we do can i say something about fly vomit yeah most people vomit after they eat but flies will vomit onto the food that they're planning to eat and, and digest it outside the body, kind of turn it into soup and then basically put a straw in it and suck it up. Frowned on. Suck it Very up. frowned on yeah. buffets. Um, <laughs> in Nando's. <laughs> Uh, I once went to New Zealand and I was in a cave and it was pitch black and you kind of float on these rubber rings and on the ceiling it looks like stars it looks like you're looking at the heavens I've seen actually, that have you seen yeah. it so they're yeah, glowworms yeah, yeah. right but what they don't, well, what they do tell you, but what I'd forgotten is that actually it's glowworm vomit oh. that is hanging down from the ceiling. And what they do is they vomit out these strands and then animals get caught in it and then they can gobble it up a bit like flypaper. Uh. They did some analysis on the vomit and they found that it was 99% water and 1% something else. And that something else turns out to be urea, which is basically glowworm piss. And they're not yeah. quite sure how the piss gets into the vomit, but it does seem like they're vomiting out pissy water wow. uh, to collect these wow. insects. James, just quickly, the New Zealand cave you went to, is it called the Waikiki? Yeah, yeah Waikiki, I think, yeah, something like that. We went on tour to Australia and New Zealand. Is that what you did with your time after the tour ended? Yes, it is, actually, as it happens. I also went to the Hobbit world. No, it's good, but just I had a few days extra, but I didn't have the means to travel, so I just went to the Wellington Funicular Railway Museum instead. And I, <laughs> I have to say, yours does sound more exciting. I've got to say, both of these sound very much on brand, <laughs> don't they? <laughs> I went to World of Socks. <laughs> what? I heard about it. I saw signs for it, and I made my husband take a detour for World of Socks. That's it's amazing. Just, it's just a store. Oh, no. <laughs> it's just a store that sells socks. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that any truffle farmer worth their salt will do regular PCR tests on their truffles. 
<laughs> are they testing them for COVID? And no, do they, they have are to not. go into isolation? And, <laughs> you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so this is basically me playing off the fact that PCR tests are just a very common, widely used thing in biology and chemistry. They are tests where you make billions and billions of copies of the DNA of a sample, and it just means that you can test it a lot easier. I went very recently to the Echo Musée de la Truffe uh, in the village of Sorge in France, uh, which is the big truffle museum in France. And this is something I learned while I was there. <laughs> is this whole podcast you just doing tax deductible trips by mentioning it as work? Is that what's going on? I've been doing that for eight years, Dan. <laughs> I'm surprised you haven't noticed by now. Yeah, so there's a few reasons why you might do it. So first of all, you might want to check your truffles to make sure that there's no other funguses coming into your farmyard because a truffle, for anyone who doesn't know, it's like a mushroom, but it's from the fungal family. But unlike a normal mushroom, it doesn't send out spores. The spores all grow on the inside and they grow underground and you can pull them out and they're delicious to eat. But they're very, very expensive. And so when you're growing them, you need to know that they're growing properly and the PCR test can check if there's any other fungus in the area. And the other way that they're useful is you get a lot of cheap funguses coming in from different parts of the world, especially from China. And so when you are selling your truffles, you can do a PCR test to show they're the real deal and they're not cheap truffles from elsewhere in the world. And what's amazing as well is those cheap truffles are so identical to a real truffle that even if you held them under a microscope, the spores are just not different enough for you to be able to tell the difference. Yeah, yeah. it's incredible. So there's two ways of telling, one on a molecular level, or the other way is by tasting it, um, because according to French truffle aficionado Eduardo Manazares, it tastes like a turnip. Mm. <laughs> Whereas a truffle has this amazing kind of earthy flavor, doesn't it? Like actual truffles. But these ones taste like potatoes, uncooked, unsalted potatoes. But you know what? I think probably you ship them over here to America, the fake ones, and, and nobody will know. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever eaten any truffles. I did think, oh, no, once a few years ago, I had some chips which had truffle oil on them. Imagine my surprise researching this fact. Most truffle oil has never even been near a truffle. It's made of something called bismethyliomethane, which is derived from petroleum. And the only reason it's used is that it smells a bit like truffle. No. Wait. You've been putting petrol on your chips. Yeah. I wonder why they were burned all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so they use, we're talking about arson dogs earlier. They use truffle dogs to find them. But not only do they use truffle dogs... They use truffle hogs. <laughs> truffle hogs are amazing. These are wow. domesticated pigs that go around smelling out the truffles. And the reason they're able to smell them is because they share the natural sex hormones that the male pigs produce in their testicles, which they somehow bring up to their mouth and salivate out for the female pig to smell. It's got a very similar smell. And so they're basically smelling the ground for male hogs, but finding truffles. That's amazing. I encountered some amazing boar technology that involved those pheromones and that saliva in Denmark in order to figure out which pigs are ready for mating. You can do it by just taking around a teaser boar and the boar kind of salivates and, and makes these horrible, retching, grunting sounds. And the females that get aroused, they know, okay, these females are ready for insemination. But instead of the teaser boar, somebody, the Danish pig production Council, I think it was, uh, they developed this 
bore on wheels, remote controlled, <laughs> that was doused with boromate, which is a, the pheromone of the boar. It's a spray. So it was doused with that, and they had an MP3 of it playing the retching, horrible grunting sounds, and they would make it go around to all the females to see which ones were ready. But um, wow. it didn't work very well, and the farmers didn't like it. Its, <laughs> its name was Skippy. <laughs> Skippy. Oh, boy, That's you'd feel so really amazing. disappointed if you'd called for Skippy the bush kangaroo and Skippy the wheeled <laughs> sex ball turned up. The thing is about the pigs, Dan, you were saying, is that um, they don't really use pigs anymore because or the hogs because they basically will eat the truffles mm. if they find them, uh, whereas the dogs will just sniff them. And the other thing is... If you have a really good area where your truffles are, then you don't want anyone else to know about them. You want to keep it secret. If you drive up there with a dog in your car, then people will think, oh, he's just taking his dog for a walk. But if you drive up there with a pig in your car, then people are like, well, I know what this guy's up to. Well, I've got a good idea what this guy might be up to. <laughs> it is. That's exactly it. Because the idea is as soon as the pig finds it, you basically have to wrestle the 20 stone pig and you have to wrestle the truffle out of its mouth. It's impossible to do. Whereas dogs will swap for sausages, apparently. <laughs> they kind of notify you, and then they say, okay. But actually, the best thing to find truffles is truffle flies. So truffle flies can find truffles better than dogs and pigs, and that's because female truffle flies like to lay their eggs in truffles, so they need to be able to find them. And the way that you do that is you walk around, because these flies are really, really tiny and they're almost see-through, so you can hardly see them, and you just prod the grass with a little stick, and then if you get the right moment, then they'll all kind of fly up and they'll hover over the area where your truffles are, and then you can dig in and get them. Would you eat yeah. a truffle which had truffle flies in it james in it mm. well i must say i'm not a big fan of any kind of mushrooms so probably not no okay because really. yeah. apparently that does happen it's not always treated as a bad thing if there are truffle flies in there so oh, there was really? a doctor at the university of nancy called dr francis martin who said that if you collect it just at the right time the truffle will have eggs and larvae in it which adds proteins and aroma to the truffle Oh. Mm. Have you ever eaten any weird stuff like that, Mary? I kind of get the feeling you might have done. <laughs> I have had some weird food. Yeah, I, I was up in the Arctic in an Inuit town and because I had this idea, like, if you only eat meat, how do you get your vitamins? And oh, yeah. the, the answer is uh, organ meats. So they basically eat the, the whole entity. I went to this community feast and they had this Arctic char lying there and the guy was hosting me. He said... We're going to give you the best part. And I could see he's sort of cutting something <laughs> that looked like the forehead. And I was like, oh, okay, great. Because I know cheeks, you know, cheeks are good. So probably forehead is pretty good. But it was the raw eye. And it's a fairly sizable fish. So it has a fairly sizable eye. And it had that, you know, that thing hanging, the muscular thing in the back. I don't know if you know that the back of the eye has this. It's kind of like when you eat a chicken leg, that hard, awful tendony bit. It was like that. And I said... Oh, thank you. And all the elders were standing around, like <laughs> nodding, like, and I don't know if they were just, uh, it was a prank or it really is the best part. But I said, it's not going to be like a cherry tomato, is it? They don't eat cherry tomatoes. He's like, it's <laughs> like, no, no, no. It was like a cherry tomato. It just exploded oh. in my mouth. Because you got to, oh. you know, so you eat the whole thing oh. at once. You don't take a bite because it would dribble. Oh, my goodness. I've never had truffle. I, I mean, I guess I've had shaved truffle. Mm. Shavings. Or, oh, yeah. You know, yeah, like, that but that's, uh, yeah. 
I don't know. I don't know what all the fuss is. I know. They <laughs> sell for so much. So like a pound of black truffle, you can get white and black truffle, can sell for like 400 American dollars a pound. Do you guys know, is it the case that it's it's not just about eating, but if you can get a truffle, you can breed it? Is that, is that the thing or is it not? Is it purely just eating? Mm, some of them are cultivated. In fact, yeah. there are some kinds that you can and some you can't. So I think it's Italian white truffles. They're still wild and they're really hard to find. But French black truffles, pretty much all of those are cultivated. So Yeah, something like 95% yeah. now of all the French truffles are cultivated these right. days. They mm. cultivate them all over the world. As In America, they certainly do for okay. sure. It takes 10 years of them to grow. And it might be that you just plant your farm, then 10 years later, you find out you've got a load of turnips. Well, not if you use your PCR <laughs> test. Not if you have PCR test, absolutely. <laughs> um, have you guys heard of Helen Gilkey? No. No. Um, so Helen Gilkey was the first woman to receive a PhD in botany at the University of California in Berkeley. Uh, and she was the world expert on truffles probably throughout the 1930s, 1940s and into the 1950s. She named a whole load of truffles, but whenever she named them, she also drew them and she would also write a poem about them. <laughs> and the poems that she wrote were amazing. So here's a poem that she wrote. Now here comes Hidno Trier. It's hymenium lush, lining the walls with a deep piled plush, gradually merging at entrances wide into the pattern of surface outside. American species we have not a few, and both those in Europe we likewise have too. For example, H. Tulasnei of Old World fame, by mycologist Berkeley given its name, its presence in US regarded as myth until here discovered by Alex H. Smith. Very nice. That's, that's great. A, it's a bit of doggerel, but I think that's really nice. I love it. I love it when a poem is like a Wikipedia article for you. <laughs> like, we just got the story of the truffle. Exactly. She must lean very heavily on the words snuffle, scuffle, and ruffle, though. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you're right. <laughs> Can I tell you one thing about the truffle of the year? Oh, yes. This was a thing in the 40s and 50s, and it was a PR campaign. There was a guy called Giacomo Mora who was trying to make white truffles fashionable, which they weren't at the time. Uh, it was all about the black truffles then. And he launched this campaign where he would send the best truffle of the year to a global celebrity. So in 1949, <laughs> Rita Hayworth received the best truffle of the year. Wow. wow. Whoa. <laughs> 53... Winston Churchill, That's 1954 amazing. Marilyn Monroe, wow. Pope Paul VI in 1965, Emperor Haile Selassie got one, or just this weird club of people who've received the best truffle. That's incredible. Yeah. Do we know that they received them as in they didn't just receive some weird thing in the mail and chuck it away? Like <laughs> I'm sure it was recorded delivery, but I, we don't really... I, <laughs> I don't I, mean I find their reactions. <laughs> we haven't got photos of Marilyn with the truffle at Haile <laughs> Selassie. Even if it wasn't recorded delivery, he probably had a letter with it explaining what it was. <laughs> yeah. It probably wasn't just a truffle through the post. Hopefully they were given some kind of warning you know, before it you showed so. up. Because I used to work at the SPCA, uh, the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. I was in the public affairs office and my boss at one year... She had, for Christmas presents for uh, people in the media, she had these cookies in the shape of a bone, you know, human cookies, and she just left them on in, in a bag on the doorstep. She went around and delivered them, but she didn't tell people. And someone called the bomb squad <laughs> and, and blew off the cookies. Oh, my God. <laughs> on truffles and how much people love them. Yeah. I just love this line. The composer Rossini. He claimed that he had only cried three times in his entire life. Okay, here's the quote. He said, once when my first opera failed, once again, the first time I heard Paganini play the violin, and once 
when a truffled turkey fell overboard at a boating picnic. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that there are signed copies of Life magazine circulating on auction sites that are said to be autographed by Ham, the first chimpanzee in space, but are in fact forgeries signed by other chimps. (gasps) Wow. Other chimps that have been in space or just other chimps? No. Oh, really? Just boring other chimps. This is true. I talked to Ham's trainer and vet, uh, Bill Britz, when I was working on Packing for Mars. And he said, he's talking about how Ham was this beloved, world famous on the cover of Life magazine to the extent that people were sending flowers and letters to Ham. And they started requesting autographs for Ham, the chimpanzee. So Bill tried to oblige them. You know, they'd send their copy and Ham, the chimp was not signing with a pen. Mm. It was a paw print. And at a certain point, he said, I was afraid we would wear him out. So at a certain point, we just took any chimpanzee and used their paw. Wow. <laughs> so it is true. The other chimps are actually, I've accused them of forging signatures here. They are innocent bystanders whose palms have been pressed <laughs> onto paper. That's quite benevolent then. That's nice. I, I didn't know that background. Mm. That's uh, a relief. Yeah. As in it was done for Ham's benefit, you know. Part of it was, uh, you know, because the Soviets had put a, a dogs up in space and successfully landed them. Uh, the U.S. was trying to make a really big deal about, look, we did it too. <laughs> it was like he was a short, hairy astronaut. They dressed him up in a pressure suit, which he didn't need. It's the capsule was pressurized, you know, to these photo <laughs> shoots. And, and it was, and he was, a, he was a very friendly, outgoing chimp, unlike the second chimp, Enos, that nobody ever talks about. Well, so why was, what was wrong with Enos? He was a very uh, ornery, Aggressive, unpleasant, and kind of ugly chimpanzee. But just your buzz is grumpy. Yeah. His trainer, uh, the Dr. Finnig, he, he you know, when people would ask him about him, this is how he described him uh, in public. He instead of saying he was ornery, he was cussed, he was horrible, he'd said he was a taciturn pillar of the community kind of guy. Oh wow. <laughs> Do you know these um, handprints? Yeah. Can you tell the difference between a ham one and a sham one? Like, is it possible to mm. tell the difference or not? Hmm. Probably if you had a, a real one and you compared it, I mean, they're probably fingerprints, right? Oh, yeah. Prints, I, I would so. imagine it'd be pretty easy, but you'd need to have an actual ham print. Yeah. I've seen a photo. They do look quite hard to distinguish. They're quite inky. They're quite thick. So the one that I found was sold on an auction site back in, I think, around 2008. And it sold for surprisingly little, in my opinion. It was $2,100. <laughs> and they sell other things like, yes. you know, like uh, on lots of animals, you'll have the identifying name on a little metal sign what do you mean dan do you mean like a dog tag a dog tag sorry but it was a chimp tag yeah actually just very quickly because a lot of people listening might actually not be aware that we sent uh, primates to space before we sent humans and in fact ham has that honor ham is the first primate to go into space 
beat Alan Shepard, the American, beat Yuri Gagarin, the Russian. And this was on the 31st of January, 1961. It was a test for the Americans to make sure that everything would go right ahead of their trip with Alan Shepard, which actually cost them the honour of getting the first man in space because Yuri Gagarin got in there in that time. But Ham was a huge celebrity back in the day. It was obviously a big deal. And as Mary was saying, just a really charismatic chimp. And you know who got no publicity at all was the five Alberts who went up beforehand. What? These were, yeah, the Alberts. And then there was Patricia and Michael. These were all monkeys. They weren't apes. You know, chimp is an ape. Really? These were monkeys that were launched uh, in a <laughs> suborbital flight uh, and, and came back down. I, uh, but wow, I've never heard of them. Yeah, the Alberts. The first Alberts uh, ended catastrophically. They didn't survive. So at a certain point, they somebody realized, you know, Maybe we should stop calling them Albert. They switched to uh, Michael and Patricia. It's a bit weird naming them in the first place because it does humanise them a bit more. And it, when you hear that, you know, Michael and Patricia <laughs> yeah, have yeah. not survived their space journey, it's, it's much sadder. But yes. so Ham was retrospectively named because for that exact reason, Andy. So when I say that the dog tag was sold, right. it didn't say the word Ham on it. It just had the number 65 because that was the number oh. of chimpanzee. He was in a big number of, I think, around 80 chimpanzees who were auditioned for the role. What yeah. kind of audition was it? You had to sing a song, then you had to do... <laughs> your party trick in a tutu yeah there was a swimsuit round yeah <laughs> it was bizarre the training well it wasn't bizarre it was very scientifically worked out but you had to push a lever after seeing a light that was the mission and then that's what ham had to do in space yeah it was basically to make sure that uh they were still functioning that something horrible wasn't happening to their cognitive abilities in zero gravity that they were able to do the training that they'd been trained to do Ham did do a press briefing after his trip. He was yes. wheeled out, as as you say, in the in the suit. Or, or certainly he was he was asked to get into the metal couch that was like the one he'd been in on the yes. space flight. And he very vigorously refused to get in there. Yes. So it seems to imply he didn't have a wonderful time. It's a thing that's sort of being rewritten in the sort of perception of Ham because the footage that always gets shown of Ham is him having, let's say, a quite pleasant trip up into space. But the extended version of it, uh, and I've not seen the footage myself, but there's there's a lot of talk about there being a lot of distress in his face and him being quite scared. And Jane Goodall, who did see the footage when it happened, said she's never seen a chimpanzee look so scared in her life with the facial expressions. And I think at the time, as Mary, you point out in the book, no one knew how to place Ham. Was Ham an astronaut who was going there as part of a heroic adventure? Or was it an animal who had no idea what was going on? And obviously it was an animal that had no idea, but the perception was that it was a hero for America. Mm. Um, and so the narrative was that. And it's being reassessed a lot now to say, actually, it was animal cruelty. I have a refrigerator magnet of Ham, and he looks like he's smiling. In fact, that's a that's a not a smile. That's a sort of a grimace of stress. Oh. Uh, but people looked at it and thought, "Oh, look, he looks he looks so happy." But I have a photo of myself doing that on a log flume ride <laughs> at a theme park. And again, it does look like a smile. But I'm not happy. I was looking at um, other hams in space. <laughs> <laughs> so go on. Well, I found a few. So we've mentioned on the podcast before the first ever meal eaten on the moon was a ham sandwich so yep. you know ham is quite an iconic thing by, um, ham. by buzz aldrin by buzz aldrin the ugly one so that would be a little a little dehydrated cubed ham sandwich about one inch square 
I believe. Oh, what's that? Yeah, yeah. we're not talking rye and mustard and lettuce and tomato. Well, you see, in my head, it was always like, yeah, like a 12-inch sub. Definitely. Yeah, the ones that went (laughs) to the moon, the the space sandwiches then were like, they were little dehydrated uh, cubes that you would pop the whole sandwich in your mouth at once so there would be no crumbs. Because if you had crumbs and they floated Uh, around and they'd get into the electronics and they could cause problems. And they were so dry that you would have to moisten them with your own saliva. So you'd have to hold them in your mouth and kind of gather up the spit to make them <laughs> swallowable. Wow. They were so, they tended, this stuff tended to travel up into space and come right back down. <laughs> and they also didn't want to eat because they didn't have a toilet. They just had the bag, the fecal bag. Uh, yeah. A lot of times they, on these shorter missions in particular, like Gemini, they just didn't eat because they didn't want to use the bag. So... Yeah. Wow. That makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> Just on that, do you remember we had Tim Peake on about a year ago talking about his time in space? I don't think we ever mentioned they do this training where you're underwater for a while, the special underwater yeah. base, and they had a problem with their toilet. And for whatever reason, the answer became you had to stick your bum out of this underwater base <laughs> and and just sort of poo into the open ocean. But the problem was that lots of fish got the message that this was dinner time and they would turn up and they'd start nibbling your bum if you didn't have a poo quickly enough. And so yeah. it became a kind of race. Is that a nice thing? When people like go into shopping centres oh, sometimes and get wow. fish, fish to nibble on their feet, right? That's amazing. People say that's a nice feeling. Do you think it's the same on the bum bum or not? James is actually banned from every shopping centre in the UK from misusing those facilities. <laughs> <laughs> And I think they tried to solve the problem by putting up this curtain of bubbles to give the astronauts in training a kind of privacy screen, right? But unfortunately, it was just a massive dinner gong. Yeah. And all the fish would see the bubbles from miles away. And, oh, great, there's going to be an astronaut poking their ass out. I suppose it's all right if they're the little kind of nibbling fish. But if yeah. you get a huge, like, great white shark coming along, you don't want that, do you? What a death, though. What to report that. Tim Peake died <laughs> when a shark ate him anus first. That's really funny. <laughs> um, do you guys know, um, you might probably do know her actually, Peggy Whitson. Uh, she's, an, she's an astronaut. Yeah, so yes. she has the record for the yeah. most time that any American has been in space and any woman has been in space. She was in space for 665 days. Um, oh, yes. And she was the first person to do a real-time kind of DNA test to find species while in the ISS. So basically, they would scrape a bit of the table and they would put it in and they would be able to tell which species are there. And that's obviously really, really important, especially in the future. It might be really important when we're trying to find, you know, if there is life on other planets or wherever. Um, But she did that, of course, using a PCR test. So in the future, any astronaut (laughs) worth their salt will be doing a PCR test wherever they go. Wow. I interviewed Commander Whitson oh, really? back from Mars. Oh. I did. She's just really badass, fabulous. So she told me this story about she was coming back from uh, the ISS on Soyuz, you know, the capsule. And they do they don't do a splashdown. They come down on land. Well, they uh, it was kind of a, a off nominal, as they say, something things didn't go quite right. And she didn't land where she's she was meant to land. She lands in this field out on the steps and. She gets out and there's this farmer who comes over and he's like, where did you come from? And she's like, 
I came from space. It's <laughs> 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 like walks away. That's amazing. Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is Andy. My fact is that you can now send sperm on a postcard. <laughs> and Andy's address is... <laughs> so I couldn't do it before, could I not? You Well, it's just been proved that it can uh, be done. So you mean, like, and it survives? I mean, presumably it survives. you could send ah. dead sperm on a postcard forever. Yes, Absolutely. Since the invention of the medium. Yeah, it's been, I'm sure. Probably one of the first things they sent, I would have thought. Absolutely. Wish you were here. Um... (laughs) Okay, so this is an experiment that some scientists in Japan at Yamanashi University have been doing. Normally, sperm gets sent around the place in glass vials, and it's vulnerable to breaking And some freezing methods are things like freezing with um, liquid nitrogen, which it's not a great system for sending sperm around the place. And they have been working on ways to make sperm viable in transit in more convenient ways. And they've been freeze drying sperm for some years now. And now they are getting to the bit of their experiments where they are sending it around. So what they did was they freeze dried some sperm, mouse sperm in this case, onto a single sheet of paper. And they sandwiched the paper between two little sheets of plastic, but then they just attached that to a postcard and they sent it through the post. And it was absolutely fine. And they were able to get viable mice bred from this sperm. And they really tested themselves as well. They sent it uh, at New Year when the postal system is under a lot of stress because lots (laughs) of people are writing to each other. And what was on the back of the postcard? Was it a scenic <laughs> view? Or? One of them was a Happy New Year card. We do know that from the experiment, but they, they haven't clarified what else was on the uh, the exciting bits. Oh, I don't know if it was the front or the back, actually. I assumed that it was on the bit where you do the you write the message. Yeah, you, know. you would think so. Yeah, You'd right. Think so. right. Yeah. But the bigger challenge here is possibly how to get the sperm out of the mouse. That's, that is a, a bit of a challenge mm. for scientists. I talked to a woman who was looking into a a male birth control and they were testing it on macaques. And she said, we had a heck of a time getting them to, you know, they wanted them to masturbate and produce a sample. And she said, and it was very, very difficult. They had to end up using a sort of ejaculator thing. But anyway, she had this great line. She said, a monkey is not smart enough to know what we want, but too smart to have sex with an artificial vagina. Because that's what they were trying to do. Trying to like get him right. to mount the artificial oh, okay. monkey vagina. So that was the challenge. So a mouse, yeah. Well, maybe maybe this is the answer to your postcard question because maybe on the other side was a sexy picture of a mouse <laughs> and they just got them looking at it and as they ejaculated, just swap it around. If you know how they got sperm out of a mouse, then send your answers on a postcard to Andrew <laughs> Murray. <laughs> maybe they just wheel in a little mouse uh, on wheels, Skippy. you know, Skippy. Yeah, Skippy. playing some noise. <laughs> Skippy, what a, his career's really dropped. <laughs> Well, you've got a new gig, mate. (laughs) No, but Mary, you're absolutely right about the... Because I know that for bigger animals, they sometimes use a little... um, Artificial vagina. Oh, 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 electro-ejaculator, yeah. Yes, which goes, I think, um, into... Up the bum, and then... Yeah, quick blast of that, and away you go. Um, yeah. But no, you're right. They use the artificial ones too. Oh, but for okay. a mouse, I don't know if anyone makes a. It's an tiny, a little tiny. Yeah, 
It was interesting. They tried lots of different types of paper, didn't they, um, to see which was the best. They tried washi, which is like that traditional Japanese wrapping paper. Uh, they also tried like a vinyl sheet. They tried weighing paper, which turned out to be the best, filter paper, a few different things. But they found that even though some of them worked, like for instance, weighing paper worked particularly well, some of them didn't work because the paper would stick together with the sperm mm. and so you wouldn't mm. be able to get it back afterwards. Interesting. Right. I might be wrong about this, but I think from what I was reading in the paper, the spermatozoa die, but you can still get the DNA. The DNA remains intact and then you can take the DNA and then you can inject it into like a, right. I don't know what, a newer site or whatever they inject stuff into. I see. Okay, so it's yeah, the sper- it's not like in Star Wars where they bring back Han Solo after he's been frozen in position in the thing. How did they get the sperm out of Han Solo? <laughs> Is it a solo Han thing? Yeah, very nice. <laughs> Some uh, mouse sperm, they think, are saboteurs, oh. which kind of act as, as cock blockers for other sperm or for rival mouse sperm. They seem to block the sense of direction systems in other mouse sperm, which is just remarkable. That's interesting. Mm. Yeah. I remember someone did a study testing this theory that the corona of the glands of the penis was a sperm displacement device. Like, in other words, if you go in right after another guy's been in there, this ridge would kind of remove the other person's sperm. And what I enjoyed about this study is that they had to come up with a recipe for semen simulant in order to test this. They also had to buy a bunch of dildos and they, and in my book, they had, uh, actually I had two recipes for semen simulant and one with cornstarch based, one flour based. What I liked a lot was that, you know how in a recipe it'll be like yield two dozen cookies. This is what it said, yield one ejaculate. Oh, Wow. Speaking of um, semen recipes, um, <laughs> yeah. have you guys happened to come across... Oh, wrong word, the wrong phrasing. Have you guys seen the book Natural Harvest? No. no. Interesting book, uh, published by a guy called Paul Fotenhauer. Uh, Foti is his nickname. And it's basically a collection of semen-based recipes. Oh, this was released in 2008. It's a real book. You can you can buy it. He's done a sequel, which is a sort of cocktail bartender's handbook. Cocktail. Uh, yeah, what kind of tale? <laughs> <laughs> so here's the description. He says, semen is not only nutritious, but also has a wonderful texture and amazing cooking properties. Like fine wine and cheeses, the taste of semen is complex and dynamic. Semen is inexpensive to produce and is commonly available in many, if not most, homes and restaurants. Despite all of these positive qualities, semen remains neglected as a food. And it's an entire book that you can get where semen is sort of just added in the recipe as a little twist. So there's a lot of normal recipes just with, you know, like shepherd's pie with semen. Or... Oh my God. Really? I mean, because I was thinking it has proteins in it, doesn't it? So you could whip it up like egg whites. I was thinking for cocktails, for instance. Mm. I don't know. Like a very small meringue. (laughs) Very small meringue, though. (laughs) Do you remember Midget Gems, Andy? I do. (laughs) They were like little bits of biscuit with a tiny meringue on top. (laughs) I thought they had very complex flavours when I was growing up. I had no idea. I don't know what you're no, talking about. No, you had to grow up in the UK in the 1980s to get that. Midget but... Gems, I swear to God, the Peter K demographic has just lost their minds for that bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. 
when you're sending um, semen from one place to another, you obviously need it to be in as good condition as possible. And that's why you might need something called an extender. And an extender is a nutrition-rich liquid which you can add to your semen from, let's say, a horse or from whatever, and it will make it last for longer. So you can get human extender. There's one company called Sperm Prep, which they make this thing out of egg yolks and you can kind of mix it in and it'll make sperm last for longer. One of them is called Excel, which obviously make sure you get the right Excel if you're trying to get something on your computer. Don't go for the wrong thing. And also another one called BTS. So if you're ever trying to buy a Korean pop group's records, make sure you get the right BTS. And so what it just sort of keeps it in good nick and yeah it's nutrition right like it's the one that james is talking about with the yolk is that's called a tyb a test yolk buffer and it's basically the same it's the same principles of when a person is ovulating they obviously have to feed it helps the sperm to to get fed as it's trying to fertilize and this is the exact same principle so it's like chicken egg yolk or a type of chicken egg yolk that is just feeding it as it's in the mail. It's really clever. It's really interesting, the whole situation with sperm donors in the pandemic, because the supply has not been as great as the demand. The demand has been huge because a lot of people, as they've been sitting at home, think, actually, I maybe I do want a kid and maybe they haven't been able to do it and so they need the donations. But they haven't been able to get enough into the actual sperm banks to distribute them. So there's been this whole kind of black market that is... A black market that exists on Facebook pages, for example. And there were these, what are kind of known as these kind of like mega sperm donors, these specific men in the US who famously have fathered, you know, hundreds of kids. They've been flying all over the country since the lockdown has stopped and been sort of like handing over their sperm, basically. Also, these guys are kind of like they used to have, before there was artificial insemination, they had what's called the boar truck. And it was just a a boar with good genes that would travel from farm to farm and inseminate the sows. Wow. Exactly that. The boar truck, yeah. And it's what, what the most interesting thing about it is you know who the donor is, which apparently has been a big thing for a long time. You have a lot of people going, I wish I could know the name and the genetics of the family that I'll be inheriting through the father's sperm. And this is the quick way of doing it. You don't have to wait till a child is 18. You suddenly can do it. Yeah, remember there was a story about the guy, there was like a, a genius sperm bank. You know, supposedly you know, all these well-bred Ivy League school types would come in and donate sperm and there was a waiting list. And, and it turned out in the end, it's just the guy who started the company. It's just all oh, his no. sperm. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Just one guy. Yeah, a lot of it was one guy, yeah. Yeah, he charged him a lot of money. It was, it was quite a scam, yeah. Gosh, I think he found it hard to get Nobel Prize winners to donate, didn't he? And also a lot of them are in the 60s and 70s and 80s and yeah. perhaps aren't giving the full cup full at that age. <laughs> but also you want their dads, don't you? You want the dads of the Nobel yeah. Prize winners. So, Oh, good point. You want Mozart's dad. You don't want Mozart. This is, a lot of this is the plot of a Roald Dahl novel, um, Roald Dahl's Rudest novel, and Roald Dahl's least family appropriate novel james um, and the giant sperm was it oh my god <laughs> charlie and the sperm factory no <laughs> george's marvelous medicine no it was um it's called my uncle oswald um oh. and it is extremely rude it's 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 hilarious and very uh, it's absolutely scandalous and it was it was before he started becoming cuddly uncle rolled Here's something that I didn't know about sperm until I was researching this week, and that is post-ejaculatory modifications to sperm. 
uh, otherwise known as PEMS. And this is, in lots of animals, um, we're kind of just starting to learn about it, so we don't know how common it is. But in lots of animals, a male sperm, once it gets into the female reproductive system, will change and will gain proteins and gain changes from the reproductive tract of the female. So it will actually completely change. So there are some animals where the sperm will be a certain size, and then once it gets into the female, she will add some kind of proteins or whatever, and it will grow in size. Some of them, it will turn inside out. The um, scientists who were writing about this were saying, basically, the problem is that all of our biology over the last 500 years, people have basically only looked at male subjects all the way through. And now that we're starting to look at more of the female reproductive system, we're starting to learn a whole load of stuff that we didn't know before. That's crazy, wow. though. Isn't that amazing? I've never heard of that. That's insane. That's like having a, it's like having a different outfit for when you're trying to get into a club versus an outfit that you're comfortable <laughs> dancing in. <laughs> Uh, we should wrap up shortly. Do you guys have anything else before we go? Uh, William Shatner got all of the horse semen in his recent divorce. That's just a fact. <laughs> wow. Yeah. There's not much more to say about that. Apart from he and his wife got divorced, they have horses, and she got to, she's allowed to visit the horses, but explicitly in the settlement, he gets all the sperm. Okay, so he gets the horses as well. It's not like he oh, just yeah. collects. <laughs> no. Right. Okay, he doesn't just go <laughs> once every few months and collect it. Wow. No. That's a kind of weird future custody element almost. I don't know if it's custody. I, they didn't say anything about the consistency. <laughs> <laughs> what Sorry. is he doing with it is the question. Well, making more horses, making I think. Making more horses, uh, yeah. Okay, or he's got natural harvest by <laughs> Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. James. At James Harkin. And Mary. Mary underscore Roach. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or go to our website, nosuchthingasafish.com. You'll find all of our previous episodes up there. You'll also find links to our tour, which we're about to start. We're going to 26 different places in the UK and Ireland. We're even playing crazy places like the London Palladium. So do go and check it out. Uh, but the most important thing of all is you need to get Mary's latest book in America. If you're listening over there, it's called Fuzz. If you're in the UK, it is called Animal Vegetable criminal this is genuinely and i don't care that she's here with us right now listening to this this is the best author out there she's the best we've got such an honor to have her on our show do get this new book we're reading at the moment and it's just fucking awesome all right we will be back again next week with another episode and we'll see you then goodbye goodbye